Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Chris Terracone. Season 8 of Jury Duty explores the trial of Alex Murdoch, a member of one of the most powerful families in South Carolina, who is accused of murdering his son Paul and his wife Maggie, with the purpose of covering up a multitude of alleged crimes including fraud and homicide. In our last episode, we began our review of the testimony of Annette Griswold, who worked as a paralegal at Alex Murdoch's former law firm. In this installment, we continue our presentation of Ms. Griswold's testimony. That's all coming up right after the break. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. It is the morning of February 8th, 2023, day 11 of the trial of Alex Murdoch. As we concluded our last episode, Prosecutor Creighton Waters asked Alex Murdoch's former paralegal, Annette Griswold, about her interactions with the defendant as he was routing disbursements to a fake account, based on the real Forge Consulting Company that, as was later discovered, the defendant fraudulently established for his own benefit. As we begin today, Creighton Waters walks Ms. Griswold through the mechanics of how the fraud worked and how it was discovered. Waters begins by having the witness identify her former boss. All right, when you're talking about the defendant or Alec Murdoch, do you see him here in the courtroom today? I do. Can you point him out to the jury, please? Yes, he's over in the, it looks like a navy blue jacket. Your Honor, can the record reflect he's, she's identified the defendant? Judge Clifton Newman acknowledges the identification of Alex Murdoch. As discussed in previous episodes, Fake Forge was an entity named by Alex Murdoch so that banks would confuse it with a real company called Forge Consulting, where his friend Michael Gunn was a principal. The defendant created bank accounts in the name of the Fake Forge entity in order to fraudulently divert funds away from the PMPED firm and their clients and into his own personal bank accounts. He mentioned uh, he would say that, uh, oh, I'm going to see Gunn, I'm meeting him halfway, we're going hunting, things like that. Tell the jury again, who's Michael Gunn? Michael Gunn is, he's our contact, he's the person we talk to when it comes to um, trust annuities with um, with, um, Forge Consulting. And that's the real Forge, correct? That's correct. Not the fake Forge? Not the fake Forge. Moving into the latter part of 2020, uh, did you have any particular issue arise with a disbursement to Forge that caught your attention? I did. Tell me about that if you would. Um, I was currently working from home. I'd had surgery on Halloween of 2020, and I was working from home, hadn't come back yet. I was um, planning to come back to the office the following Monday. And on that day, I believe it was December 15th of 2020, um, I got a phone call from the accounts payable department. Nicole called me, and she's one of the ladies that 
cuts the checks and works for Jeannie Seconder. And she told me that she had just got a disbursement sheet over that Christy had sent over a disbursement sheet in one of my files. It made no sense. She didn't understand it. And I was like, I was confused too, because I was like, why didn't he contact me to do my disbursement? Because I'm kind of protective over my files. If I've worked that file the whole time, I want to finish that file. I want to work the whole process of it. And actually the disbursement part is my favorite part of the file because I want to be able to have that be there when that client gets their money and gets that closure that they deserve. So I thought it was very odd that Christy was drafting a disbursement in one of my files and this was the day you were off work. That's correct. I was I was working from home and I could, still could have been reached, but I wasn't until Nicole reached out to me and told me. Keep going. Um, she told me, so I look, she sends it to me by email or text. I can't remember. And I reviewed it and it didn't make sense to me either. There was a line on it that said, um, the attorney fees were going or amount of it was going to forge. And I, I didn't understand how that was happening. And I'd never seen him send, um, attorney fees to forge before. And so I didn't know that that was even a possibility. And um, so I called the office and Christy transferred me to Ellick and I spoke to him and asked him about it. And he said, why, why did Nicole call you? And I said, well, she doesn't know how to write these checks out because it doesn't make sense to her. She hasn't ever seen a disbursement like this. And he, he said, I'll take care of it. And so he said, I'll call Nicole, I'll take care of it. And so I remember um, talking to Nicole later and say, so what did he say? What was the reason behind it? And she said, he said that they um, structure, they can structure their attorney fees and that's what that check was for. Did you have a subsequent discussion with the defendant about that? I did, and he told me the same thing. He said it was something that they've been able to do forever. He just never took advantage of it before, and so now he decided that he was going to start structuring those attorney fees where it would make interest, have interest drawn. And so it made sense, because why not? Why not, instead of having that money sit somewhere, put it somewhere where it's going to draw more money? His explanation to you made sense. Yes, it did. On its face. Yes. Do you remember the name of that case? Uh, that was the Hirschberger case. Prosecutor Waters then brings a document to Ms. Griswold before displaying it on the monitor. We'll show you what's already been embedded down at the state's 429 and uh, see if you recognize this document. Yes, I do. This is the disbursement that was on in December of 2020 that I was talking about. Okay. All right. Put it up on the screen. At that point in time, we're in December of 2020, is that right? That's correct. After the defendant gave you that explanation that seemed valid to you on your face, did you did that matter just kind of go away at that point in time? It did. It was kind of, you know, always at the back of my mind because I still felt like there should have been some kind of paper trail. But, yeah, you know, the explanation worked that he gave me, and so I was trying to just go along with it because I thought it was valid. As we move on into January 21, 2021, did another incident happen that came to your attention? Yes. Um, the end of January, it was a Friday afternoon. I left early that day to take my mom to, to the eye doctor. And kind of the same scenario of kind of an exact repeat of December happened again. Nicole from Accounts Payable called me, and, she, and I said, what's going on? And she said, well, I've got another one. And, and so Christy had drafted a disbursement in a case referred to as Moore, and um, she had sent it over. And once again, it had the same wording and kind of confusion that the one, the Hirschberger one had a month previous. So she didn't really understand it again. Still, you know, still, she was still trying to say, you know, I 
I feel like we need more information on this. And I said, I do too. And so kind of the same scenarios before I reached out to Alec, he reached out to Nicole and ultimately the checks got written, but it was the same scenario as you can see on here, the 91,867.50 was attorney fees that were structured that went straight to Forge to the fake, what we now know is was the fake Forge. All right. And uh, is that still in the Hirschberger matter you're talking That's about? the Hirschberger one. And on the Thomas Moore one, we'll, it we'll was... A okay. When you got that call, do you remember where you were, the second call? Yeah, the Thomas Moore, I was at the eye doctor with my mom. I'm, I'm still in Hirschberger. Do you remember where you were? On oh, second? I was home. I'd had surgery and I was home recovering. Creighton Waters displays another document on the monitor for Ms. Griswold. She appears to struggle to read it. So Waters brings the physical document to the stand and hands it to the witness. And I'm going to show you this, uh, and we're still in the same exhibit, that being 429. Do you recognize that at all? Let me, let me hand this exhibit to you. Yeah, this is um, what we refer to now as the second Hirschberger disbursement. It was on the UIM portion of the case and liability portion. Um, so once again, the PMP attorney's fees were routed to Forge in the amount of $83,333.33. 33 Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Prosecutor Creighton Waters moves on to ask Annette Griswold about another abnormality in disbursements made by Alex Murdoch in 2021. All right, you'd start to talk about uh, Thomas Moore. Is that another incident that came to your attention as we're moving uh, into early 2021? Yes, sir. That one, like I said, was at the end of January. Uh, once again, I was out of the office. I was at a doctor with my appointment with my mom. Got the call from Nicole. She said it's the same scenario, but this time it was all the funds that was in tr client's trust, which was $125,000, I believe. And all those funds were being routed. That was attorney fees and client money that was being routed to um, the fake forge. And this was another one of your cases, is that right? It was. So another situation where I'm out of the office, it's almost five o'clock in the afternoon on a Friday, Christy drafts the disbursement, Alex signs it, they send it over in my absence. When these instances are happening that you're describing to the jury where you happen to be out of the office and, all, and these are your cases, right? That's correct. And all of a sudden you're getting communications that the defendant is having Christie draft some disbursements. In any of these cases, was there anything going on that something happened and had to be done that very day that you just happened to be out of the office? I didn't think so because um, in particular, the Thomas Moore case, it was, we were working on the third party portion of the case, but there was also a worker's comp portion that another attorney was working on. And when you're working on a worker's comp case, if you settle the third party first, you can't disperse it until the worker's comp portion is taken care of because worker's comp always has a huge lien that you have to negotiate for the client. So the money was supposed to sit there. It was my understanding it would probably be sitting there another year until the worker's comp portion case portion of the case was settled. So those funds 
didn't need to go anywhere. So it was very odd that all of a sudden they're, they're all sent to Forge because they were supposed to remain in the account, was my understanding. Do you uh, take pride in the work that you do on these complex cases? I do. Do you know your cases very well? I, I'd say I do. And did, was there any reason of which you were aware that things, things hap had to be happening the day that they were? Spoke? I did. No, I was. It, it definitely put up another yellow flag, and it made me think about the previous one that happened in Hirschberger in December, because both of them were this, kind of the same scenarios. Me out of the office, someone else drafting it. And not that we are we can't work in each other's files. We can, but it's easy to miss something if it's not your file. If I had to go in somebody else's file and draft a disbursement, I may not know that there's a lien or a or a certain promised medical bill or anything else that needs to be paid. So it's, that's why, to me, it's, it's easier if somebody that's worked the case actually drafts a disbursement because they know all the deductions that have to come out. Was the defendant using the opportunity of you being out of the office to push these things through? Yes, in hindsight, it was easy to see that they, the chaos, the sending it over at you know, 10 minutes before 5 p.m. was kind of, you know, kind of a, a way of part of that little hurricane, a little tornado portion, you know, just sending it over when most people are gone and it's just going to get done quickly and no questions asked. You said that the Thomas Moore line was particularly unusual because it was workers' comp and those funds couldn't be dispersed yet, correct? correct. To your understanding. Yes, sir. Did you ever have a conversation with the defendant about why these funds were dis uh, were dispersed? I did, and he explained to me that he had gotten permission that since the money was going to be sitting there another year, um, that they were going to send it to Forge and let it draw interest, and then that would be money that, that would draw interest on for the client as well as the firm because it was both portions of the money. Creighton Waters hands yet another document to Ms. Griswold. I'm going to show you what's already been met into evidence of stage 328, see if you recognize this document. Yes, this is the Thomas Moore disbursement that I'm re referring to that where the entire client um, trust amount of $125,000. Do you recognize the signature down at the bottom of the page? I do. Alex signed it where it says R. Alexander Murdoch, and then where the client's signature is, um, that is not the client's signature. It's... It's Alex's handwriting. You recognize this handwriting from working for him for nine years? I do. Prosecutor Waters next asks the witness about the fees from a case involving Andrew Ferris. Alex Murdoch had represented Ferris with his friend and law school roommate Chris Wilson following a 2015 vehicle crash involving Ferris and a Mack truck. In February of 2021, Ferris was awarded a $5.5 million settlement with $792,000 in attorney fees due to Wilson and Murdoch's PMPED law firm. Did the defendant have a, a case going on around this time uh, involving Mack trucks? He did. Um, what we refer to as the Ferris case, we actually went to Columbia and had a bench trial in that case in January of 21. And did you uh, work on that case to some extent? I did. Was that one of the ones assigned to you? Yes. Did, was the defendant the only lawyer on that case or were there other lawyers? No, there was two co-cancels that had um, brought us in. Um, Wayne Ridgeway was the first attorney that received that case. He reached out to Chris Wilson's office and Chris joined the case as well. And then Chris reached out to our firm. And so now there's a third attorney, which was Alec involved in it. Ultimately, was that case tried before a judge? It was. Bench trial, like I said, in January of 2021. And did the judge issue a verdict in favor of uh, the firm's clients? Did, yes, sir. And um, the next month, I think sometime in February, we got a very nice verdict for the clients. Uh, who was going to be dispersing the fees in that uh, once the money came in? Was that going to be PMPED or was it going to be the other attorneys? Chris Wilson's office. 
had the firm PMPD had it accrued costs in the course of that litigation? Yes. Expenses? Yes. And did you prepare those and send those to Chris Wilson's office, or how did that work? I did. I put the totals in an email and sent them to, Ellick wanted me to send him the totals by email, and so that's what I did. And then he, I guess he sent them to Chris after that. All right. And then after that happened, you remember what month the money came in? Yeah. In May. Um, well, let me let me slow you down. Once you've done that, when the money comes in, you said Chris Wilson's office is going to be handling that disbursement, correct? Correct. What are you expecting to happen next? I'm expecting copies of the settlement paperwork, you know, copies of the disbursement sheets signed by, signed by the client, and I'm expecting two fee checks and two expense reimbursement checks because there's two cases. It's the it was a case for the for the deceased and a case for his wife. So I'm expecting four checks total. You're about saying I cut you off. You said something happened in May. Did something happen in, related to the Ferris case in May? Yes, um, I received by mail um, a, the settlement package from Chris Wilson's office, but all it contained was a cover letter and the two expense reimbursement checks. So I emailed Vicki Lyman, which is Chris Wilson's secretary, and said something on the something like, "Hey, girl, I got these expense checks in. When can I expect the attorney fee checks?" And she replied to my email telling me that, "Hey, friend, you know our the the attorneys got that money at disbursement." And I was really shocked because I didn't even know when the disbursement took place. I was never supplied copies of it or anything. What's your thought when you uh, when Vicky says that? What what did, what did you think may have happened? Well, I, I called her and I said, you know, you already gave the checks. I was like, we I don't think we've received them. And she was like, yeah, they they were done at disbursement in March. And so I asked her first to send me over copies of the disbursement sheets and where I could look at those. And then I reached out across to our accounts payable just to make sure that checks somehow bypassed me and went straight to their, into the client trust to their department. And they told me no, that they didn't have any such checks on the books either. And I was like, okay, so I assumed that they gave Ellick the checks and he's lost them. They're misplaced. They're somewhere in his truck. They're somewhere in a file folder stuck and just kind of hit away that, and he's forgotten to give them to me. You're like, come on, why'd you give yeah. them to my I said, boss? Why? I said, why would you do that? I was like, why would you give checks to the attorney? Why wouldn't you send them straight to me where I can get them and get them deposited? <laughs> Waters then displays one more image on the monitor for Ms. Griswold. I'm going to put uh, it states 312 that's already in evidence, and this is the page uh, marked bait stamp 2371 for the record up on the screen. Can you see that on your little screen? Do I need to bring it? I can. That I can see it. And can you tell the jury what that is? That is the email I was talking about where I told her I just got the expenses, but where's the fee? And she says, it's because your boss and mine and Liz's got their fees once they were signed. Duh. Uh, did you uh, have a conversation with Alec at this point? Or what? I did. So you um, called, called the finance in your own firm and said, hey, did we get this check? And they correct. said no. They said no. And so I verified that. And then I told, I asked Vicki, I said, are you positive? And she said yes. And I was like, okay, I'll go see if he remembers where they're at. So he happened to be in the office by that time. His door was closed. I went in. He was on the phone. And kind of kept checking and going back. Eventually, I got to speak to him, and he, he was still kind of on the phone, but he was like, no, I didn't get those checks. And I was like, are you sure? And he said, yeah. And I was kind of back and forth. And I'm like, you said he didn't get them. Are you sure? And this kind of went back and forth for a few minutes and over the course of that, the rest of the day. And I said, hey, he just told me that Chris was still holding those funds in trust. I was like, I don't understand. You know, you say that they've been cut. I was like, can you send me copies of stuff? Because I don't see anything. And he's telling me their funds are in trust. And she was like, and it 
I know for a fact that the checks are cut. There is no money in trust. And the reason I know that is because when the checks were written to Ellick, I knew it was a bit odd because they were written to Richard. They were written out to him personally instead of the firm. And I said, I'm there. Written out to him personally instead of the firm. Correct. Why did that stick out in her mind? Why, well, why did that stick out in your mind? It, because common sense tells me that the attorney fees belong to the firm, where the firm, I don't know, I didn't understand the complete breakdown until Jeannie went over it in her testimony, but I knew by common sense that the funds belong to the firm. And then once they do whatever percentages and everything they need to do, then the, the attorney gets his portion later. So I knew it wasn't right, that it shouldn't have never gone to the, an individual attorney. It should go to the firm as a whole. When you ask the defendant, said, hey, Vic, Vicky says you already got those, and he tells you what? He told me that Chris was holding that money in trust, that it had not been dispersed yet. Did he tell you Vicky's wrong? Yeah, he told me Vicky's wrong. I don't care what she's telling you, she's wrong. What was his demeanor when you were inquiring, you know? Just kind of like, you know, just shooing me out of his office, like, I don't have time for this. Uh, after Vicky tells you that it was odd because the checks had been made out to the defendant personally instead of the law firm, what did you do next? I asked her, I said, are you sure? And she said, yes. And I, she said, yeah, it was written out to him. Well, first I was like, I'm sorry, what did you say? And I made her repeat it to make sure I heard correctly. And she was like, and then kind of while she was saying it out loud, I think it kind of registered to her, oh, wait, that probably wasn't the right thing to do because she kind of hushed after that and didn't want to talk and kind of wanted to get off the phone with me. And so I still kind of tried to question Ellick over the next couple of days and tried to get a reasonable explanation of what was going on because in my mind, you know, I'm still hoping this, he just lost the checks and this was all just a, a misunderstanding. But at the back of my mind, you know, there's this huge, huge red flag telling me this is not right. You know, what, what is going on? Did you eventually, uh, take this issue to anyone else since you couldn't get an answer about it? Yes. Um, I eventually, um, I don't know the exact date, but I eventually emailed Jeannie Seconder and asked her if she was in the office because I really needed to speak to her. And she said she would be back later that day. And so we, I went into her office and I had everything printed out and kind of showed her and told her my concerns. And she was instantly on, on high alert as well because, you know, it was it didn't look good we were hoping we were still both hoping that it was a misunderstanding just this one-off something silly that happened but we both had that nagging feeling of this is not good something is definitely wrong did Jeannie instruct you to do anything um she did not she said that she would talk to him about it and she kept the paperwork that I gave her were you ever asked to send another email to Vicki asking for a particular document yeah actually it was kind of my idea I kind of told Jeannie, I was like, hey, you know, why don't we do this? Why don't you send me an email telling me what we need, what we need, and then I'll forward that email from myself and, you know, to see if we can get copies of everything where we can figure all this out and eliminate it. Because, you know, at this point, we want to prove that that suspicion we had was wrong and that everything's really okay. Creighton Waters scrolls through the documents displayed on the monitor from his Griswold. Bill on uh, states 312, what's been bait stamped is 2374. And is this the email that you just described that Jeannie uh, forwarded to you requesting the documentation for the uh, Ferris fees? It is. Um, underneath where, um, yeah, Jeannie texts there or emails there and tells me exactly what she needs and kind of is very specific. At what time, what date was that, I'm sorry? That was May 27th at 1140 a.m. And then going over to 2373 in the same exhibit, is this... 
the email right here that you then forwarded to Vicki Lyman at Chris Wilson's office? Yes, it was. Um, I emailed, forwarded that email that Jeannie sent me on the same day, May 27th, and I knew she was on vacation, but I went ahead and sent this to her, and then when she came, when I knew she had time to get back from vacation, I sent this um, follow-up on the strand on June 2nd and requested it again. And did you get a response email from... Vicki Lyman and Chris Wilson's office. Yeah, she said she didn't, you know, this doesn't involve her, and she forwarded it. She said she would forward it to Chris. And we were basically just asking for copies of everything where we could clear this matter up. And, you know, like I said, we, we wanted our suspicion to be wrong. And with that, we bring to a close this episode of Jury Duty, the trial of Alex Murdoch. Please join us on our next installment as we continue our review of the direct examination of Alex Murdoch's former paralegal, Annette Griswold. Also, check out the Crime Story podcast, Night Raid, wherever you get your podcasts. And, if you would like to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You can find more information about this trial on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created and produced by Carrie Antholis. It was co-produced, written, and edited by yours truly, Chris Terracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Trial audio is courtesy of Law & Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty.